This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Welcome to Coffee House Shots of Spectators Daily Politics Podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Isabel Hardman. James, over the weekend, we've had an escalation when it comes to the situation in Ukraine, more attacks by Russia and actually getting closer to the Polish border. Where are things at now? So I think the significance of this decision to hit this base near Lviv in western Ukraine is essentially Russia trying to say to NATO, if you want to carry on making arms shipments to Ukraine, we are prepared to try and strike those shipments. Now, I mean, there are a whole series of technical obstacles to Russia striking those shipments, which is, you know, they would need actionable intelligence. They they, they have no military presence on the ground anywhere near the Ukraine-Polish border. So it's, you know, very hard to see how they could do that accurately. But I mean, that's the message that the Russians were were trying to send with this, this strike outside of Lviv. But this obviously is an escalatory risk. But I don't think that's going to stop NATO sending this weaponry on the basis that it is quite hard for Russia to hit it. And also because you know, it's quite clear that you know, the Ukrainians are still holding out. Uh, the Russians are still taking losses. And while, as you saw with the whole MiG fighter jet debacle, but there are kind of limits to what kind of support NATO is prepared to send. I mean, the kind of stuff that NATO has been sending to date, they will carry on sending. And I think it is telling that they aren't trying to do this clandestinely. They, they, they are still publicly declaring what they are sending. And I think that is partly because they feel they want to make a point that, that these sales are legitimate under international law because every sovereign nation has a right to self-defence. And so, you know, they are entitled to carry on sending this weaponry to Ukraine. And I think what you saw today with Sajid Javid pointing out that if, you know, one Russian tow-cap were to incur into NATO, Article 5 would be invoked is an attempt to basically make quite clear that if the Russians wish to try and strike on the Polish side of the border to try and adopt the kind of similar, you know, kind of what might call a Laos and Cambodia strategy for supply routes into Ukraine, NATO would regard that as a kind of Article 5 invocation moment. It's interesting, James, too, when we're talking about a potential agreement between the two sides. We know these negotiations between Russia and Ukraine are continuing. There seemed to be fresh hope last night that there could be um, some way uh, to end what's currently happening and both sides get something from this. And last week, I definitely picked up in government from those really close to these calls and the contents that this idea of coming to an agreement is perhaps more doable than has been widely discussed. Do you think there is something in that? Or is it, as we've seen with lots of these talks, that you know people agree to something and then uh, Ukraine says Russia have actually misled them? So... I think it is clear that things are not going as the Russians intended. And you would think that that would logically mean that they would be more inclined to strike a kind of deal. Putin has enough control over the information environment in Russia that he could depict it as a kind of success. I mean, you know, you could depict something, for example, Ukraine admitting to uh, neutrality and not joining NATO and accepting that Crimea is de facto part of Russia now as you know Putin could claim that was a great success but I I think the x factor here is what Vladimir Putin is prepared 
to accept and do. I think it does seem that these talks between the Ukrainians and the Russians are making some progress. We've heard that from one of Zelensky's advisors. We've heard that from a Russian MP. The question is, what is Putin prepared to accept? Now, logically, you can say that given the fact the war is not... Uh, going well for Russia, given the effect of the sanctions, given the number of casualties Russia is taking, uh, Putin should be inclined to cut his losses and rely on the fact that he controls the information environment in Russia enough that he could depict some situation where Ukraine promises not to join NATO and commits to neutrality as, as some, you know, as being the purpose of the operation. But I think it is very hard to read what Putin's intentions are. So I think, you know, in a way with these negotiations, you know, until we are at a Putin-Zelensky level, I, I think we should, we should, we should treat with a certain scepticism whatever is seen to be coming out of the talks. Isabel, what's the level of concern in government and the Tory party about um, an escalation, about Putin go, moving further? Yeah, I mean, I think because things haven't gone Putin's way so far and because he's sort of lashing out all over the place, sort of targeting lots of different locations, trying to make the whole of the country of Ukraine feel uh, the pain of the Russian invasion. There are concerns that things might spill over, over the border of Poland and therefore going over the border, uh, the NATO border, which is uh, the concern that we're seeing uh, across uh, the media today in the newspapers, in, in all the broadcast interviews that ministers have been given and so on. And the, the fact that there was an attack uh, just, you know, I think it's 13 miles away from, from Poland really underlines that. And it is, again, something that when you hear ministers and other figures of NATO figures and diplomatic figures uh, talking about how that would be crossing a line and there would be a firm response to that, you then get into questions about the specifics of what NATO's firm response would be. NATO is obviously a, d a defensive alliance, it's not an offensive alliance, but it would respond to an attack, to missiles that landed in one of its partner countries. But I think everyone so far has been notably very vague about what a response to that would be. Now, Isabel, last week, the government received plenty of flack, including from The Spectator, over its confused offer on Ukrainians um, fleeing their country to come to the UK. But we now have had an update from Michael Gove. It feels as though there was a big effort to correct and try and change the narrative. What is Michael Gove offering in terms of Brits here taking Ukrainians into their home? Yeah, so politically, Michael Gove has a reputation for being someone who, who loves big reforms, who loves sort of, you know, smashing the, the establishment, the blob within a department. But I think another thing he's really built a reputation for over the past, well, over a decade now in government is that he turns up in someone's department as the new Secretary of State and basically clears up their mess in quite a public way. Now, he hasn't moved, obviously, to the Home Office, but the refugees brief has been very conspicuously moved into the levelling up department or split between the Home Office and the levelling up department with Michael Gove taking quite a noisy lead on it because of the concerns about Priti Patel's uh, approach and because of her weakness as Home Secretary, not just over this, but over her handling of the boats trying to cross the channel and so on. And so once again, we have Michael Gove clearing up another minister's mess, which I'm, I'm sure is endearing him to certain ministers within Cabinet. And indeed, there have been splits over his plan to uh, seize oligarch mansions to house Ukrainian refugees. But what he is announcing today is the Homes for Ukraine scheme, which uh, launches today. People will be offered £350 a month to host 
refugees. They'll have to commit to a minimum of six months for people to stay with them. That stay for the refugees themselves could then be upgraded to a further three years. It's not clear what happens after that six months staying with a family. Do they move elsewhere? There are obviously a lot of questions that, that are going to be asked uh, when Gove uh, announces this in the Commons later about how to ensure that the refugees who are able to come here, who are welcomed into uh, British people's homes, uh, have the right support system around them. So are they able to register with a GP? Are they able to get the right mental health support? I mean, our mental health system is, is on its knees as it is at the moment. So is that going to be able to accommodate people with a very high level of trauma and give them the support that they need? Uh, what about schools? Are schools going to be resourced properly? And you heard the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, on the broadcast around this morning, uh, being very clear, you know, London welcomes refugees. We're, we're very keen to take people, but there are lots of logistical issues here. And so this is going to fan out across a lot of different departments, given everything has been quite last minute, given everything has been quite confused and chaotic. It wouldn't be a surprise if there were significant gaps in this plan to welcome people, although... Uh, one of the things that I've picked up from Conservative MPs who I've been messaging this morning is that they're really happy that this Homes for Ukraine scheme involves people in a community welcoming refugees into their homes because it means that they then get introduced into community institutions and they have a sort of a route in and it feels as though the community is in control of this rather than refugees just being told, you are going to this town, this is where you are going to live and their neighbours saying, right, these are new people who have moved next to you. Now, James, one of the other big moments of the week potentially is if the Prime Minister travels to Saudi Arabia. Now, you were on the first to write about the prospect of this in your Times column. What's at stake here when it comes to, A, the Prime Minister going, which could be midweek, and two, uh, the likelihood of releasing more oil? So lots of people talk about, you know, whether the UK should frack more or should drill for more oil and gas in the North Sea. None of these things will have a short-term effect on the price of energy. Now, this doesn't mean that they shouldn't be done. It just means that they're not going to give you any short-term relief. In the short term, the biggest impact that you could have is to get Saudi Arabia that has one and a half to two million barrels a day of spare capacity to pump more. And this is something that they have done in the past to affect the oil price. They did it in, in Gulf War One uh, when the Americans turned up in Saudi Arabia. The Saudis said, right, we will stabilise the oil price by pumping a lot more. In a price war just for the pandemic with Russia, they pushed the price right down by ramping up their capacity. I mean, it was, it was remarkable. It was less than $20 a barrel then. And I think the question is, can you get them to do this? The problem is that the Saudi-US relationship is really bad at the moment. And it's really bad for two reasons. One is, after the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, Joe Biden, as a candidate, called Saudi Arabia a prior state. As president, he released an intelligence assessment which, which said that bin Salman bore responsibility for this kind of brutal killing. And Biden has refused to deal with MBS. MBS has not taken that well. He gave a, a, a rather petulant interview to Atlantic magazine saying, that, you know, if, if Saudi Arabia were to kill journalists, there would be a thousand journalists they'd be more likely to kill than Khashoggi, which is not an entirely kind of reassuring response. But that's kind of one set of reasons, those personal reasons. The second is the Saudis feel that the US are retreating from the Middle East and at the same time offering Iran re-entry into the nuclear deal in these negotiations in Vienna 
on far too soft terms. So if Boris Johnson, who is essentially, I think, here acting as a conduit more than anything else, is to get anywhere, he's going to have to have some kind of answer to those two questions. I think it is optimistic to think he's going to get anywhere on this first visit. I think, you know, Boris Johnson has cancelled two recent trips to Saudi Arabia. Maybe, you know, if he had developed those relations a bit more, maybe he had more chance of success. But I think it is a stretch to think he will be able to do it right now. But I think there is a pitch to be made to the Saudis, which is essentially this, which is, look, you want to revive your relationship with the US. This is your chance to re-establish your status as the indispensable interlocutor on the oil market. And I think that, you know, that is the the attraction to the Saudis. I think in the medium term, the obvious thing to take from this, something the point that, that you've made, Katie, is that, you know, this is why the West needs to invest in nuclear and renewables, which offer you the, you know, the greatest levels of security of supply, and also mean that you don't end up having to do, to kind of spend your time kind of trying to sweet talk a regime that executed 81 people this weekend. Thank you, James. Thank you, Isabel. And thank you for listening. And while we have you here, um, do check out the Coffee House Shots live event we've got coming up, where we'll be digesting and analysing the spring statement. Clearly, Ukraine and Russia is going to have an impact on that. That's going to be on the 23rd of March, Wednesday. Tickets, details online, doors from 7pm, Emmanuel Centre. Um, we might sneak in some spectator gin, depending on the licensing laws of the venue. Just go to www spectator.co.uk forward slash spring.